Precious Father in heaven, thank you for this privilege to come and worship you this morning. As we're here in this place, we're longing for you to pour out a fresh baptism of your Holy Spirit into our hearts. We're longing to be filled with your love. We're longing for your word to make a difference in our lives. Lord, we don't just want to sit here and go through the motions of worshiping you. We're asking that you would radically transform our hearts by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. This can only happen through you, but you are the Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, and you are capable of taking our hearts and forming them into your amazing character. Lord, touch our hearts this morning. Speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I met Leah back in 2005. I think I had crossed paths with her a few times before that, but it was 2005 when I finally got to spend some quality time with this amazing girl. So at the time I was single, and I got an invitation to go with her up to do some ministry uh, to a a school that was up in Northern California. And at this school, we were going to be sharing and doing some different Bible classes, and, and then we'd have afternoons off, and When I got up there and was hanging out with Leah, I thought, man, this girl's a lot of fun. She's a lot of fun to be around, and not only that, but she's beautiful. And day by day, we would hang out a little bit more, and I was just more impressed with how much she loved Jesus. As she would share with the kids, she was doing a lot of the speaking and sharing. She shared her testimony, and I thought, wow, here's a girl that really has a relationship with Jesus, that really knows Jesus for herself. And she's beautiful, and she's a lot of fun. We went out one day to Lake Tahoe, and we swam across uh, onto an island there in Lake Tahoe, and she's an amazing swimmer. And just little by little, as I, as I saw Leah, I fell in love with her. It only took about a week's time until I thought, you know, this is an amazing girl. <laughs> Unfortunately, at the end of that week, we had to part ways, because I was headed off with my family on family vacation to Colorado. Now, I have never been so sad about going on vacation in my entire life. So we went on vacation and got to Colorado. I remember I would call on the phone and just hope that I'd get to talk to Leah, just see how things are going, see what, you know, what's happening back in Bakersfield. I never have wished before in my life that rather than being in Colorado, I was in Bakersfield. Finally, that week came to an end. And I got the opportunity to go back down to Bakersfield finally. And I remember that day clearly. I got there early, even though I had to go down to L.A. on my way to Bakersfield from Fresno. Had to grab some stuff on the way because <laughs> I was moving out of the college I was attending. And I took that stuff and I, I still managed to make it to Bakersfield early for some reason. And so I called Leah and I said, you know, uh, just here a little early, she said, well, come on over. Went over to her house, and some of her uh, family was there, and we went swimming with her sister in the pool and just had a fun afternoon, but it was her birthday. And so we had a special thing planned that we were going to go with the family to Olive Garden. We went, and we had dinner, and more people showed up than I realized because her sister, her boyfriend, her, her best friend, there was this big group at Olive Garden, probably eight to ten people. Now, I had a plan. Because I was falling in love with this girl, I said, I'm going to buy her dinner. But now, there's about eight people there, including her parents and all these people. But you know what? 
it didn't even cross my mind how much this was going to cost. Because I was on a mission. I wanted to do whatever it took to win Leah's heart. At the end of the meal, I actually snuck off, went to the bathroom, gave the credit card to the waitress so the parents wouldn't give any hard time. I didn't even ask how much it cost. I didn't even care because I wanted to win her heart. That's what first love is like, isn't it? Maybe you've experienced it yourself where you've fallen in love with somebody and you just would do anything possible for them. That's the picture of the church that we get in Revelation chapter 2. Go with me there in your Bibles. In Revelation chapter 1, we talked about it a few weeks ago, how Jesus displays himself to John, the revelator, on the island of Patmos. He's there. He's been uh, asylum. He's, he's put there on this island to get rid of him. And it's on this island, on the Sabbath, on the Lord's day, that God shows up and Jesus reveals this amazing vision to him. He reveals himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty. He reveals himself in this high priestly garments. He's the one who walks among the churches. Beginning in chapter 2, the vision is told us that Jesus is giving to John of seven churches. Now these seven churches we find as we go through them and we parallel them with history, that they span through history from the time of Christ all the way down to the end of time. So here we're going to jump in this week to the first church. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Right. Now Ephesus meant something like desirable. Ephesus was the city that was prominent, most prominent in Asia. Now in Asia, there was another city that was the capital city. There was a lot of wealth in Asia. But Ephesus was the richest of cities. It was the most glorious of all the cities. It was the the city that everybody traveled to to get to the Mediterranean Sea because it was right there on the Mediterranean Sea. It had a harbor. And when people were coming to Asia, they usually went to Ephesus first. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now remember from the vision, if we jump back to verse 20 of chapter 1, it told us what these seven stars are. It says, The mystery of the seven stars which I saw in my, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now angels, that word is angelos, which is also used for John the Baptist. It's used for the disciples. Angels, when we think of an angel, we think of a glorious heavenly being. It actually means messenger. And oftentimes these were heavenly beings who came in glorious form as messengers, but sometimes they come in human form, like John the Baptist. This word is used to apply to him or to the disciples at another point. So here it says that these seven stars represent who? The seven angels of the seven churches. So these are the messengers to the churches. These are the leaders of the churches. These are those who deliver God's word to God's church. As we find the seven churches span throughout history. So this represents God's leaders in his church, God's messengers in his church throughout Christian history. Then we see in the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So here in the beginning of chapter 2 when Jesus shows up he says, thus says He who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Isn't that beautiful? 
Jesus says, I'm the one who holds the leaders of the church. I'm the one who holds the messengers of the church. I'm holding them in my hand. And the Greek word there is not just partially holding them, but fully grasping them. He has them all encompassed and he's leading his church. You can trust that Jesus is hanging on to his church, that Jesus is leading his church. Despite the human things that we see in the church, we can trust that Jesus is the great high priest and the most holy place of the sanctuary who is working with his church, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. We talked about this a few weeks ago in the sermon Alpha and Omega, how Jesus is the great high priest in the holy place of the sanctuary who keeps the candle burning. This was Aaron's job, we find in Leviticus, that he would keep the candelabra burning with its seven branches on it. He would keep each of those burning. This was the job of the high priest to keep it burning continually. So you and I, as part of Jesus' church, we're called to be lights to the world. We can only light the world because Jesus is our great high priest who keeps the fire burning, who keeps the church set on fire for him, shining the light of his love to this world. So he brings this message to the Ephesian church and he describes it as why he's bringing this message. He is saying, I'm the one who holds the messengers in my right hand. I'm the one who walks among the candlesticks, who makes sure that the church is doing okay, who checks in on the church to make sure it's still burning brightly. And then he says this, verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. This is good, a good thing, isn't it? Here he's describing the church, and he says, I know your works, I know your labor, I know your patience, your perseverance. I recognize that you have been doing the work of God faithfully. And not only that, but I recognize that you have noticed when people are actually liars, when those who say that they're doing what's right are not truthful. Now, if you jump back with me to Acts chapter 20, we find Paul warning the Ephesian church that this very thing was going to happen, that people were going to come in among them trying to deceive them in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Now, Paul had spent some time in Ephesus on his missionary journeys. He spent time in it's probably about three whole years that Paul had spent in Ephesus. And during this time, he seemed to have rented out a hall from in the middle of the day, which during the hot part of the day, they didn't work back then. So from about maybe 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., they guess, he took out this hall and he daily taught the people of Ephesus about Jesus. Now, Ephesus was a very wealthy city. Ephesus was the city which had the great temple to Diana, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was the goddess Diana, or it's also known as Artemis, you might read that story in Acts, who was this figurine that uh, was sold at Ephesus that people would come from around the world. They believed that if you could get this figurine, if you could get these secret letters that were written uh, in, in Ephesus, if you could somehow come on this pilgrimage that you could be healed from all kinds of diseases or you could have prosperity, if you just could get to the temple of Diana, great things would happen. 
It was also a city of incredible immorality as they had temple prostitutes there that when you went to worship, that was part of worship back then. It was a terrible, uh, really the immorality that took place in that city was quite appalling. In fact, historians of that time talked about Ephesus and there's one, uh, one philosopher who is known as the weeping philosopher. And he said that it, how could you keep from weeping when you saw all of the filth, all of the immorality that took place in Ephesus? Here Ephesus was this rich city. It, on the outside, it was where everybody wanted to come, but inside it was really a terrible city, full of immorality, full of people being mistreated. It was a sad place, really, although on the outside it was beautiful. It had one of the seven wonders of the world. But here in Ephesus, of all places where you would think that the gospel would have no attraction to people. I mean, here they are wealthy. Here they are. They have all the pleasures they can want. They have everything in Ephesus. I mean, it's the center of Asia, the the most beautiful city. And why would they want to know about this itinerant preacher? Why would they want to hear from Paul about this guy who died on a cross named Jesus? What would make them buy the power of the gospel? What would give them a desire to follow Jesus? And yet Paul experiences incredible success in the city of Ephesus. During his time in Ephesus, you eventually find that the sellers of the idols for Diana or Artemis The silversmiths, they get so upset at what Paul is doing that they start a huge riot in the city because they're no longer able to sell their idols anymore because everybody recognized that what Paul was saying was true, that you shouldn't worship a God made with human hands, but you should worship Jesus Christ, his Savior and their God. It had radically turned the city upside down so much so that they started a huge riot that nearly had... uh, Some of Paul's associates were taking out some interesting stories in Acts chapter 19 and 20 about the city of Ephesus, if you get a chance to read them later. But later on, when Paul is headed to Jerusalem, this is in Acts chapter 20, where we're headed, verse 28. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and he doesn't actually want to stop in Ephesus, I imagine, because the church there was so fond of him that he wouldn't have been able to stop and then keep on going. It said that he wanted to make it to the Feast of Pentecost. And he's wanting to make it to Jerusalem, but he knows, God has revealed it to him, that in going to Jerusalem, he's going to be put in prison. He's headed there with full knowledge that they're going to persecute him. They're going to put him in prison, and eventually they're going to take him to Rome. And so, he calls the elders of the Ephesian church, and he calls them to come to him. In the beginning, verse 17, he talks about uh, just the ministry that he's done in Ephesus. And as he calls these elders, he begins to share with them about how God has moved among them and how God is going to move in the future. But we're going to skip down to verse 28. And this is where he warns them. Verse 28, he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that 
For three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Here, Paul says, there are savage wolves that are going to come in. I'm leaving, and you need to protect the church of God. Because they're going to come in, they're going to come in in sheep's clothing. It's going to look like they're Christians. They're going to act like Christians. They're going to pretend that they profess Jesus, and yet they're really wolves in sheep's clothing. So watch out for them. Guard yourselves. Guard the church. Keep on guard against these false prophets who will be coming in. At the end, in verse 27, it shows how much they loved Paul. Actually, we'll go to verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. This was the end of Paul's ministry with the Ephesians. And here the elders, as they're there with him, it breaks their hearts to know that they're not going to have any more time with Paul. That he's headed off to prison, he's headed off to be persecuted, and the Holy Spirit has revealed that they're not going to get to see him again. They loved Paul. And so they clung to what Paul had told them to do, and that was to guard the flock of God, to guard against the, sheep, the wolves in sheep's clothing that were going to come in. So back in Revelation chapter 2, we find that this is exactly what the church of God has done. This is how the church has been performing its duty. The people of God have been watching out against these wolves in sheep's clothing. Verse 2, it says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So when those who came to Ephesus saying, we're apostles, we're sent, we're here to proclaim the gospel, they tested them. They tested them by the word of God. I can't encourage you enough to follow the example of the Ephesians. When somebody comes to you saying, hey, check this out, or tries to tell you things, make sure that you're basing it, you're testing it by the word of God, then the word of God only. That's what they did. They tested each of these apostles and found that they were liars. And then verse 3, And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Isn't this an ideal church? When heresy comes in, when heretics come in, they recognize it. They call it out and they're not deceived. They're ones who are working. They have patience. They endure. They're doing whatever it takes for God. They're working hard for Jesus. I'm so thankful for this church. You're a church that works hard. Last Sunday, a lot of you were out here and we worked hard on the church grounds. You work hard making sure that God's church is what He longs for it to be. You work hard in this community, loving this community, working at the thrift store. You do so many things for God. I see a lot of reflections of the church of Ephesus in our church. And at the same time, I also see room to grow for me. As I look and I see, they didn't even become weary. They were steadfast. They continued on. They worked hard for Jesus. And Jesus comes to them and the first thing he says is, I've seen it. I've noticed. I see how you've been working hard. I know what you've been going through. Keep it up. I recognize what you've been doing. It'd be nice for the church of Ephesus if it stopped right there. Here, this is really what we find took place in history too because after Christ's ascension, 
He went to heaven. The disciples prayed. That Holy Spirit was poured out. And then the church began to explode. And they quickly took the gospel to the whole world. So that in Colossians, Paul is actually able to say that every creature under heaven has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. All in a generation. This was a hard-working church. This was a church that was zealous for Jesus. But then Jesus shows up to John, the revelator on the island of Patmos. He affirms them and then he says this. Because there's something else. There's something still missing in the experience of the Ephesians. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Ouch. Jesus, aren't we working hard for you? Aren't we in church every Sabbath? Jesus, aren't we doing all this stuff for you? We're not growing weary. We're patient. We're enduring. It's all for you. Can't you? Jesus says, you've lost your first love. It's not motivated by love anymore. Yes, you're doing the right things. Yes, you're not deceived by heresy. Yes, this is good. Except that you don't do it out of love anymore. Love is so crucial. In fact, Paul was the one who wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He writes the love chapter, right? And before he gets into describing what love is, he says if, in verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, would you like to be able to speak with the tongues of angels? If you could just share about Jesus with the tongues of angels. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Meaningless. It, it won't make a difference. No matter how eloquent I am, no matter what I'm able to say to people, no matter how much knowledge I have, no matter if I spoke like an angel, if I don't have love, it's meaningless. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and if I have all faith, it, sorry, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13 says, let's go there. This is a good, good, uh, good chapter to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 2 says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith. Now, how would you like to understand all mysteries? To have all knowledge. How would you like to have the gift of prophecy to be able to preach about Jesus with power, to be able to share with your family who doesn't believe in Jesus with, and you have all kinds of eloquence, you have all kinds of power. How would you like to have faith so that you could remove mountains? But Paul says if you don't have love, it's meaningless. He says, but if I have not love, it profits me nothing. I am nothing. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Is that a good thing to do? If I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. You could even go to the place of being a martyr, Paul says. You could have given all of your possessions to feed the poor, to help the hungry. You could have done all these things, but if you don't do it from a heart of love, it profits you Nothing. It's meaningless, Paul says. If only the Ephesians had got this. Because as Jesus shows up to them and he looks at them, he says, 
you're doing all the right things. You're working for me. You're laboring for me. But you've left your first love. Go back with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 continues with Jesus' remedy to the issue at hand. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 says, Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And then Jesus says this, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Those are some serious words. Here Jesus comes to this faithful church that's working hard for Him, that's been careful to avoid heresy, that's been careful to follow truth, who's been working so hard for Him, and yet He says, I'm about to come and remove your candlestick out of the way if you don't repent. You know, Lee and I got married a few years after that encounter at Olive Garden. And for the first few months, I should say, you know, we went on a honeymoon. That was an amazing experience. Uh, Somebody gave us a gift of going to a beautiful place. We had a great time there. And, you know, the first year of marriage, you, you still have almost that attitude of the first love. You're still seeking to, to win her heart. You're still working hard to, to live a life that has her fall in love with you. But I don't know what happens. There's something with marriage that, that somehow we get the idea that we've kind of arrived. Marriage. We're married and, and now we don't need to worry as much about the things that we worried about when we were dating. And, and when we went to the seminary, I remember at one point where we were so busy doing our schoolwork that I would tell people, you know, Lee and I don't have to go on dates and do stuff because we we're together all the time. We study together all the time. So, I mean, we're pretty much, our relationship is, is great because we're together all the time. But one day I was sitting in a class on marriage and family. And as I sat in that class, the teacher said something that grabbed my attention. He said, sometimes people consider their relationships as static. You figure that once you're married, you're there, you've arrived, you're in love, and then you stop trying to improve the relationship. You stop trying to make the relationship better. And he said, relationships are never static. They're always moving in one way or the other. Either your relationship is getting closer, you're falling more in love, either your relationship, your marriage is getting better or it's going to be getting worse. It doesn't just stay even keel. It doesn't just stay unchanging. And as I thought about that, I realized, you know what? I mean, we still love each other and it's, it's great, but do I try as hard to win Leah's heart every day as I did when we were dating? I realized the answer to that question was definitely not. In fact, you know, when we went to Olive Garden, I was thinking a little bit more about, oh, this is going to cost a lot. I don't know if I can afford this anymore. And no longer was that motivation of first love in my heart. That broke my heart to think about it. I thought, you know, here we were in love. Here I was willing to do whatever it took to win her heart. And now I'm at the place where I'm so worried about my life. I'm so worried about my finances that now this love doesn't motivate me like it did before. 
This is the state of the Ephesian church. But Jesus doesn't leave them there. What does he tell them to do in verse 5? It says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. The very first step in returning to a relationship of love is to remember from where you have fallen. And that's what hit me in my relationship with Leah. I began to think, you know, our relationship is good, but what about when we were first dating? Remember how much fun that was? Remember how much I loved her then? Then he goes on to say, repent. I repented at that point. I said, man, this is terrible. I've got to do something about this. This has to change. You know, the word repentance in the New Testament isn't just to confess your sins, but it means actually a turning away from the actions that were, set you on the course that you were on. Repent and do the first works. Do the first works. As I sat in that class, I realized what I needed was to do what I'd done to begin with. And that was to continue working to win Leah's heart. I actually set an alarm on my phone. I grabbed my phone and I set an alarm to go off every day at a certain time that would say, Are you, did, you do, did you try to win Leah's heart today? And every day when I look at that, I think, oh, oh no. <laughs> I guess I, I didn't. Good reminder. Okay. And so I try to do something, something small, something just to attract her love a little bit more. And you know the funny thing that happened? In trying to win her heart again, my heart began to fall more in love with my wife again. And I began to realize that God wanted for our relationship to keep on getting better. A lot of times, we think that once you've reached marriage, that that's where it stops. But really, God wants for our relationships to keep getting better, to keep getting better. But that only happens as we continue to do the first works. The same exact thing is true in our relationship with God. Sometimes we think that when we came to God and we were baptized, that that is the moment. And have you ever noticed, sometimes we'll watch as people are baptized, and for the first few weeks, they have this bright smile when they come to church, and then pretty soon they settle down and they're just sitting in the pew. And some of us have been sitting in these pews for 20 to 30 years, and maybe like the Ephesian church, we don't even recognize it anymore but we've lost our first love. Jesus had to come to the Ephesians and say, it's great that you're working so hard. It's great that you're, you're not growing weary, but you've lost your first love. They didn't recognize it. They didn't realize that what was motivating them was no longer love for Jesus. That's why Jesus had to say, look, would you remember? Would you repent? And would you do those first works? When we return and we do those first works, it ignites that fire in our hearts again. So what does that look like in a relationship with God? In a relationship with God, what are the first works like? Well, it can be a variety of things. I imagine for each of you, it was probably something different. A lot of you may have come to a knowledge of Jesus through your parents. And maybe it was when they explained the gospel to you and you had family worship and maybe it was just an, ex, an amazing experience with God that, that draw, drew you into a loving relationship with God. For some of you, it was a prophecy seminar like we just had and we just came to a conclusion of Revelation of Hope. And as you saw the prophecies of the Bible, you realized that you could trust 
in Jesus, that you realized that he had all these amazing truths for you, and as you came to accept these truths and to follow them, it sets your heart on fire. Because night after night, for an hour, you were listening to the Word of God, and the Word of God was working a transformation in your heart. Maybe for some of you, it was in a prayer group. As you spent time praying with others, maybe a small group, you were just there praying and Jesus came and he did something special in your heart and you fell in love with Jesus like you never experienced before. I don't know what it was for you, but I know this, that if that love has grown cold, and I imagine that for many of us, we would probably say, yeah, you know, I'm probably not as passionate as I was when I first accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I think there's something for me to return to. You'll never regret going and doing those first works. Saying, okay, it was Bible prophecy, then I'm going to start studying Bible prophecy for myself. I'm going to start taking time in the books of Daniel and Revelation. I'm going to spend time with Jesus every night, just like I did during that prophecy seminar. Or if it was a family worship, and you say, well, hey, my family's not having family worship anymore. Maybe we need to come together every night and we need to make sure that we're continuing to have that fire in our house. Maybe it was when you were sharing Jesus with somebody else and you've gotten to the place now where really it's just been a self-centered religion and, and Jesus is calling you today to say, hey, do the first work. Share your faith with others and you're going to return to your first love. Maybe for you, it might be that prayer group. And it's time for you to get a group of friends together and say, hey, I need this time praying together because it helps me to fall more in love with Jesus. I love what it says in the book, uh, in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, volume 7, page 956. It's talking about the Ephesians church. It says, but they neglected to cherish Christ's compassion and tenderness. Self, as manifested in hereditary traits of character, spoiled the principles of the grand good works that identified the members of the Ephesus church as Christians. They'd lost what it really meant to be a Christian. They no longer still had those principles that had started off. The Lord Jesus must needs show them that they had lost that which was everything to them. The love that constrained the Savior to die for us was not revealed in its fullness in their lives, and hence they were unable to bring honor to the name of the Redeemer. In the book of 1 John, he warned about this loveless religion and how dangerous it really was. Just go back a couple of pages to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John is a beautiful book about the love of God. John was one who experienced Jesus' love like none of the other disciples did. He was one who came closer to Jesus than any of the disciples did, and he opened up his heart to receive that love more fully. And so when he writes about it, it's beautiful. But in 1 John chapter 4, and verse 17, it says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Isn't that beautiful? It says that when you have love, it's no longer motivated by fear of judgment, but love becomes the motivation. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love 
because He first loved us. Then notice this in verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has sent, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. That's strong, isn't it? Say that if I say that I love God, but I hate my brother, I'm actually lying. I actually don't even love God. Isn't this what Jesus said in John 13, 35? He said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. You see, in the church in Ephesus, it wasn't just that the first love had died out for Jesus, but they had begun to bicker among themselves. They'd begun to become critical of each other. They'd begun to lose that love for each other. And you know, oftentimes when I've gone to visit somebody who's no longer coming to church, it's rarely because they don't believe the things that are taught in the Bible. It's rarely because they don't believe in God. But there are a lot of people who say, well, it's because this circumstance happened and it offended me, or because this person said this or that happened. I'm not just talking about this church. Any church that I've been in, when I go and visit somebody and find out that they're not coming to church anymore, it's usually because of the relationships there. I can't appeal to you enough. Don't let that affect you from coming to church. Be the agent of change. Be the one who brings love. And this is an amazingly loving church. I kept hearing that during Revelation of Hope as we had some 90 visitors come through the doors of our church and some of them were just saying, this is amazing. This is such a loving church. Praise God for that. But we can do better. We can love more. Our love can go beyond Sabbath morning just here in church. It can spread through the week. When you read in the book of Acts, church was not just once a week. They met together day by day, meeting together in each, each other's houses, sharing bread, sharing time in the Bible, and praying together because they loved to be together. When Jesus is calling us back to our first love, He's not just calling us back to a deeper love relationship with Him, but He's also calling us to love each other. No matter what that person has said or done to you, no matter how you may feel alienated from a person, love them. And love will break down barriers. Loving people the way Jesus did will smooth over a multitude of sins, as it says in the Bible. Will we love like Jesus wants us to love? In the book, Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, page 167, says this about the church. The warmth of their first love is frozen up, and unless they are watered over by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, their candlestick will be removed out of its place, except they repent and do their first works. The first works of the church were seen when the believers sought out friends, relatives, and acquaintances, and with hearts overflowing with love, told the story of what Jesus was to them and what they were to Jesus. Don't you want a renewal of that kind of love in your life? When witnessing becomes so natural because you can't help but share how incredible Jesus has been in your life. You can't help but share with everybody around you saying, this is what Jesus has done for me. You've got to hear Jesus has so filled my heart with love. He's so filled my heart with joy, with peace. I just have to share what Jesus is to me. 
That's the kind of experience that Jesus wants for me to have, for you to have. But sadly, just like my relationship with Leah, too often we decide to just settle down and say, this is all that we have to experience. You know, in Proverbs 4.18, God promises us that the path of the just is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. When Jesus is in our heart, the picture that Jesus has given us of our relationship with Him is not one that grows colder and colder, not one where we just grit it out and we do what's right because we know it's right, but it's one where Jesus is everything to us, where we're so in love with Jesus that that's why we're here in church. When we're so in love with Jesus that that's why we share with everybody around us. When we're so in love with Jesus that our church is thriving because people want to have that same love that we have for each other. This is the vision that Jesus has for his church. And he is the great high priest, the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one that causes that fire to burn in our hearts. And he alone can stir that passion again in your hearts. Romans 5 and verse 5 says, And now hope does not disappoint. This hope that God has given us of being such a loving, Holy Spirit-filled church, this hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to you. As the Holy Spirit is poured out in your and my life in a deeper and deeper measure, we are going to experience love like we have never experienced before. We're going to experience Jesus' goodness like we've never experienced before. And I can't tell you how I love my marriage today. I can't tell you how awesome it is to be married and to be in a relationship that just keeps getting a little bit better. But it takes a day-by-day commitment to say, hey, I'm going to do something special. I want to do a little surprise today that will just help us to have a little bit more love today. What if we approached our relationship with Jesus like that? Saying, Jesus, I want just a little bit more today. This is the picture that God has given us. This is what he's longing for his church to experience. This is what Paul had written to the Ephesians. When he wrote to the Ephesians, this was after he'd been separated from them. But in Ephesians chapter 3, he told them why he was praying for them. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, says, For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. What does that Spirit bring? that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in what? In love. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Wow! Paul has a picture of a loving relationship with Jesus that's far beyond anything that you or I has ever experienced before. He says it just keeps getting better. It passes knowledge. Its width and breadth and length and depth is beyond what you can fathom. Do you want it for yourself? Then do the first works. Remember that it's about a relationship with Jesus. We need faithfulness. We need to emulate and follow the example of the Ephesians. We need to Do 
good works. We need to labor like they labored. We need to persevere like they persevered. But let's remember not to lose that first love. And if we've lost it, to do the works that we did at first. In the Review and Herald, May 11, 1886, it says this, God measures more with how much love one works than the amount he does. Love is what it's all about. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, it's a noisy gong. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I'm nothing without love. God measures more with how much love one works than the amount he does. Love is of God. The unconverted heart cannot originate it nor produce this plan of heavenly growth which lives alone and flourishes alone where Christ reigns. Naturally, we can't produce love. Naturally, this love isn't something that we're capable of. But when Christ reigns in our heart, like Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 3, when Jesus is living in us, then we'll love this world the way that Jesus loved us. Do you want to experience Jesus' love like never before? Do you want to pursue that first love? Do the first works. This morning, as I close in prayer, I just want you to take time and to ask God to reveal to you maybe how far you have fallen. How far really you have gone away from that first love that stirred you to begin with, to be involved in church, to read your Bible, to pray. And ask Jesus through the power of His Holy Spirit to restore that love. First of all, for Him, and then for everybody else around you in this church. Because we know that we love God when we love each other. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for revealing your love so dramatically for us on the cross. Thank you so much for giving us the example of a loving life by coming and living as a human being. Thank you for promising us the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Father, just now we want to take a moment of silence just to allow you to reveal to our own hearts how far maybe we have fallen away from our first love. Lord, maybe we came into church thinking everything was fine, that our relationship with you was great, and we recognize that we're just like the Ephesians. We're on the brink of having our candlestick taken away because we've lost our first love. Lord, remind us, lead us to repentance, and speak to our hearts as to how we can do those first works. Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts this morning. Thank you for pouring out your Spirit in this place. Oh, please, don't let us go away from here without fully committing our lives to you. Please don't let us go away from here content with a superficial experience, but help us to be determined to have that first love, to have that love that grows better day by day, because we are seeking earnestly to fall more in love with you every day. Father, please pour out your Holy Spirit, I pray. Lead us to a true worship of the King of Kings. In Jesus' name, amen.